Hello, and welcome to the Needs Improvement Podcast, your regular deep dive into reimagining mental health and well-being in the workplace. I'm your host, Nicholas Whitaker, coach and co-founder of the Changing Work Collective. In every episode, we sit down with thought leaders in organizational health, as well as individuals who've navigated the complexities of mental health, well-being, and belonging in the workplace. Our goal? To dismantle the stigma surrounding mental health, ignite meaningful dialogue, and inspire both employees and leaders to revolutionize the way performance is gauged at work. So if you're eyeing a healthier, happier chapter in your professional life, you're in the right place. Together, let's transform the places we work into the places we would love to be. Let's dive into what needs improvement. Hello and welcome, Hannah Storm. It's good to see you today. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Nice to see you too. I've been waiting for this interview for so long. We've been kind of dancing around on LinkedIn and and various different circles for a while now. Uh, Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? What do you do and where are you calling in from? Sure. So you can see um, from behind me, it's nearly dark, which means that I am in a different time zone from you. I am currently in the north of England. Um, The closest city is York. Um, I'm Hannah Storm, as you mentioned. I am, I guess, a lot of things really, but predominantly at the moment, I'm a media consultant, author, and I'm the founder and co-director of Headlines Network, which I'm sure we're going to speak about at the mo- um, a little bit later on, um, but really kind of passionate about normalizing conversations about mental health and well-being. And it's great to finally, as you say, be connected. You know, we've been seeing each other on LinkedIn and kind of praising each other's work and amplifying each other's work. And it's really nice to kind of have allies in this space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've been just so impressed and so excited by all the work that you've been doing. You know, I had done a lot of work in the journalism industry for years past, moved on to tech and I kept seeing your name come up over and over and over again, particularly when talking about things like vicarious trauma and mental health within news organizations. And even more recently, uh, some of your posts around this reckoning around the Me Too movement that really needs to happen within news organizations. So obviously, there's a lot for us to dig in and talk to uh, each other about here. But yeah. I think what I'd really like to, to learn a little bit is like what inspired you to get into this line of work and what kind of drives your passion for having these conversations, which often can be so difficult. I guess I'm inspired by my own past experiences and my own kind of personal experience, my professional expertise, I suppose. I um, experienced complex post-traumatic stress disorder, um, connected with experiences in my journalism and in areas of my life that were related to my journalism as well. And for a long time when I was unwell, I felt really alone and I felt really isolated and I carried a lot of shame with me and I didn't feel like the environment around me the journalism environment was one that where I felt really safe so Mm. over time with the support of friends and colleagues and other kind of forms of support I you know built up myself I found I guess the tools in my armory um to to kind of be able to speak about my experiences both of mental ill health, PTSD, and also as a survivor or a new reference there, the kind of me too, but as a survivor of sexual violence as well, because Mm. I kind of, you know, I guess I put myself in a position where I thought, if not me, who? And if not now, when? And it was a scary thing to do, for sure. But I've been absolutely blown away by the friends I've made along the way and the kind of, I guess, it sounds a bit selfish, really, but 
the impact I suppose that my kind of work is having maybe it's not a selfish thing to to admit to but it really is I think having an impact in people's lives I'm obviously not the only person who does this I recognize my privilege I'm a straight white woman who has a degree of privilege who can speak where others can't and you know it's just been really kind of humbling but also really rewarding I suppose to be able to have these conversations yeah absolutely and and I think it's totally totally reasonable and uh, important to highlight the impact that these types of conversations are having. You know, I think even just observing from a distance the work that you've been doing and seeing the types of reactions and the types of comments that other people have on your posts. And, you know, it's something that I often experience myself. It's, it's this humbling experience. And I love the thing that you, you mentioned in terms of like being able to leverage and use your voice and your privilege uh, to give voice to folks that might not be able to have uh, access or the ability to speak in those ways. That's, that's very much kind of my approach to all of this. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love the way that you mentioned it's like, why, if not me, then who, and if not, when, you know, that, yeah. that I think is like such an important component for so many people to give people the permission to speak up and give them the permission to, to stand up and to, to try to engage in these conversations in meaningful ways, because yeah. in my opinion, and I'm kind of curious about yours, that's what's required, I think, to keep these dialogues going and to kind of normalize some of these experiences so that people don't feel so isolated and alone. Yeah, I think it's really, really important. Like whenever I'm speaking with folks, so I do a lot of work facilitating conversations. I kind of, you know, give public, uh, I, I speak out publicly, kind of give keynotes and facilitate conversations as well. But I always say to people, you know, I never want anyone to feel like they're compelled or forced to speak. You should always get to the stage where you feel as safe as possible. But it is daunting speaking about that, right? So Mm -hmm. even when I kind of, you know, before every conversation I have or every speech I give, I still feel this sense of, oh, gosh, you know, this kind of nervousness, this kind of sense of feeling slightly exposed. And I kind of I guess Mm -hmm. I've got to the stage now where I realize that the kind of the benefits outweigh the kind of challenges or the difficulties. But I would say that, you know, we should never feel like compelled to speak but there is a moment I think mm. where I was like well I have to do this you know I, I have the tools I have to do this and I'm hoping it's going to have an impact for people absolutely yeah and I'm curious too I mean have you found that this is also a bit of like a healing process of your own to be able to have these conversations and to kind of be a voice for others that maybe don't have their voice uh, or aren't, aren't able to share their voice yet I think that's a really important question. And I think there's two kind of specific, two answers really to that. I think the journey itself in some ways is healing. Um, I've certainly learned a lot about myself, about my coping strategies. I'm much more self-aware. You know, often when I'm speaking, I kind of say to people, look, I can feel my hands starting to sweat or I can I can feel my voice speeding up, um, my heart racing a bit more and actually taking a moment to just recognize that I do as well so I think there is definitely a kind of healing process I think you know one of the most important things around mental health is kind of finding your community I suppose finding the people who Mm. you know help lift you up and help also support you and protect you so there is an element of kind of healing within that one thing I would say and it's a conversation I've had a few times with my therapist is that actually I have to just be really aware of kind of my boundaries and just being able to say, recognize when I need to say no, recognize when the toll of kind of this work is taking more of a kind of, um, is is making me carry more of a weight or carry carry more of a burden. So I'm getting better at that. But so I think there's moments where actually Mm -hmm. it's beneficial. And also there are moments where I need to just step back a bit and just kind of go, right. Okay, Hannah, 
let's pause, let's go for a run, let's go for a bike ride, let's kind of do some do some other types of writing because it's not the be all and end all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the self-care piece I think is so important. And this is a conversation I have with a lot of folks that do this type of work or have conversations like this regularly is is it can take quite a toll, even just mm-hmm. like having regular conversations with other people and kind of hearing the suffering that they're going through and holding space for them in that way can be really challenging. And I'm kind of curious, like just from your perspective and what you've learned, like, you know, are there any tips or suggestions that you have in order for folks who maybe are in a position to hold space for people and to have these conversations on how to better take care of themselves and uh, recover from those types of experiences as well. I think it's really important to, you know, I use this analogy quite a lot with journalists because I predominantly work with journalists and my backgrounds before I started working specifically in kind of mental health and journalism space was more the safety space. So I kind of ran an organization called, or rather I was the director of an organization called the International News Safety Institute. And we would coordinate with news organizations around the world to send journalists into some of the most dangerous places in the world. And duty of care and kind of good practice when we're sending people into difficult places means suggests that we equip them with the kind of tools and the training and the equipment that they need to be as safe as possible. We can't mitigate every risk. So we're talking about flak jackets and, and, you know, uh, Kevlar helmets, bulletproof vests, that kind of stuff, first aid kits. So I try to use that analogy with mental health. So actually, thinking about what can we do to prepare ourselves for something that's going to be difficult. So what are the kind of conversations perhaps we need to have with ourselves and others about what we might be exposed to? Same in conversations I'm having with folks kind of who are revealing difficult stuff or same as if you're in a newsroom or working remotely and about to be exposed to distressing material, perhaps, for instance, we referenced vicarious trauma before. So kind of putting up what we, what some people call an emotional flak jacket so kind of, you know, donning that and making sure that you've got that equipment and that preparation and those kind of tools in check, making sure like when again, when we send people into difficult environments, you know, we have a, I guess, a communications kind of checklist. We understand who who's our kind of point of contact. Who do we need to reach out to? Who are the people on whom we can rely? Where are the resources available? So that again, like who are the people we're going to turn to if things get difficult? Who can I trust? Who can I speak with openly? So it's kind of making sure that we have that support structure in place as well. What am I doing for myself to be able to look after myself? And where can I get that resource and help from others? So I think those are the kind of areas where I try to kind of use the same analogy from physical safety to psychological safety. But also I would say that, you know, recognizing that this is a kind of journey and that sometimes we respond to things immediately or sometimes we have reactions to things immediately. And that's okay. That's normal. It's very normal to have reactions and feelings to difficult stuff but sometimes those emotions and feelings and reactions uh, don't kind of I guess come to the surface for a lot longer so just being aware I think that there's sometimes a time lag in there too yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm kind of curious too. you know, this this idea of vicarious trauma, you know, mm-hmm. I, I had worked in broadcast news many, many moons ago, was exposed to lots of different violent or disturbing imagery. Like the idea of vicarious trauma was never brought up in the newsroom uh, that I worked at. And I'm kind of curious, like, is this a, a more recent term that's been uh, shared around or a more recent type of awareness that's been mm-hmm. been developed by organizations uh, of the the impact of this type of uh, imagery and exposure or you know what's your kind of uh, view on how this has evolved over time so I think it's important to say that you know as you know I'm not a clinician um, 
I'm a journalist by trade um, or by profession, I guess. But yeah, I mean, absolutely what you said there about vicarious trauma, not necessarily being something that we talked about or we were aware of. So what my first, I've thought a lot about this recently because I've just finished writing a book on journalism and mental health. And one of the one of the chapters was on vicarious trauma. And also, you know, obviously we're speaking now at a time where we've had some incredibly, incredibly difficult um, stories in the last year. You know, I'm it, it's end of November as we're recording this. And, you know, for the last two months, we've had the, the conflict between um, Israel and Hamas. And that has exposed journalists to some really, really distressing material. So from uh, from the perspective of vicarious trauma, it's basically trauma or, you know, trauma comes from a word meaning wound. So it's things that wound us. But vicarious is kind of secondary trauma. So it's the it's the kind of trauma that other people experience, but that we're exposed to, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And so, again, as I was just saying before, my first kind of, I guess, my exposure to vicarious trauma was back in 2003, so 20 years ago, when I was a young journalist, kind of working on a news desk in a in a in a British newsroom, and I was asked to kind of go and watch the incoming agency footage of the um, bombing of Baghdad um, at the start of the uh, uh, US-led uh, uh, kind of you know conflict there, I suppose. If you want to call it a conflict, it's probably not the best term for it. But um, but I think that so I saw some stuff there that stayed with me for well, even till today. And nobody back then gave me the kind of tools because we didn't understand that that was something that was complicated or difficult. Also, probably and speaking about this recently with somebody, the people who were asking me to do this were probably not a lot older than me. And so they were just like, hey, Hannah, just go and watch the kind of incoming footage on Associated Press or Reuters or wherever it was about this stuff right so that 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 impacted me significantly and over the kind of course of the next few weeks and months I started displaying symptoms and signs which were really unhealthy as I mentioned before you know it's normal to have significant and strong feelings and reactions to things um the important thing for us to recognize around vicarious trauma is actually sometimes the symptoms themselves can be very similar or the same to symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and actually, it can be just as serious an impact on you or can have just as serious an impact on your mental health, vicarious trauma, as PTSD. So you might be just as affected in a newsroom looking at stuff or being exposed to stuff remotely as somebody might be in the actual situation. The issue is that until recently, people haven't necessarily taken it that seriously because they'll be like, they'll be, they'll, there's an assumption, I guess, that you're not in the war zone, you're not in the environment, you're not in the hostility. And therefore, you don't necessarily in inverse commas have a right to be traumatized in that way. And that really concerns me, because actually, as I've said, the science, the research shows that it is a significance. And there's also a kind of sense of guilt and shame that's carried by a lot of folks, because they think that, oh, well, I'm not there, what right do I have to dot, 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 you know, so so I think they're just I'll, I'll just finish by saying that the first kind of the earliest pieces of research around secondary or vicarious trauma, a lot of it um, through user generated content happened around about 2011, 2012, 2013 at the kind of beginning of the Arab uprisings. Um, we've had more conversations in the last decade. And I'd say since the start of the um, invasion of Ukraine by Russia in 2022, February 2022, there's been more conversations around that. And 
I would say also that a lot of the time newsrooms and organizations focus specifically just on the visual stuff. It's really important to note that it can be all manner of different things, including sound, um, including hearing um, accounts from survivors, doing research, doing graphics, lots of different stuff that can impact people in different ways when we're exposed to stuff that is um, difficult or distressing. And it can also affect people differently based on your own identity, history and perspectives as well. And thank you for that. You know, and, and imagine too the environment that most journalists work in, just like the the fast paced, high stress environments of newsrooms and just the culture of newsrooms in general probably makes it infinitely more difficult to be able to have conversations around mental health and maybe even spot when people are having issues with their mental health. Is that something that you've kind of noticed as well over the years? Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I think that, you know, we work in quite in an industry that's quite macho, I suppose, um, where this kind of sense of admitting a degree of vulnerability is kind of frowned upon. Um, and I think that what I'm seeing change now and what I'm trying to help help drive that change, I suppose, is this sense actually vulnerability is not a weakness. Vulnerability can be can actually really be a sign of strength. Admitting that you are, you know, impacted by something shows you're human. And I think a lot of the time in, mm-hmm. in journalism, we we forget that our most precious resource in journalism are the human beings who create the journalism, right? So it's the journalists themselves. We forget that humanity. And so I'm seeing certainly a change. I was one of the chapters in the book, again, that I mentioned before, I chart the kind of change and development of conversations around mental health. And I kind of chart it across the kind of last, basically from the turn of the millennium. But one of the, I think, the key things that has really driven that change is the pandemic. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons for that is that everybody found themselves impacted in some way. Not, Of course, nobody was impacted in the same way. And some people, for some people, the kind of inequity of that impact was much more acute. Um, but I think everybody kind of, every newsroom was impacted in some way. The whole manner of journalism changed dramatically overnight and we were forced to kind of reassess our, our modes of operating. And so there was a degree of, more normalizing of that conversation around mental health and well-being there's still a lot of stigma and that kind of really across the world in different countries is more entrenched stigma i think in some people of certain communities um feel it much more um because ours is pretty still a pretty kind of white straight cis male um dominated industry um but there is change and i'm really welcoming that and i think that there still needs to be more change. And I think one of the driving forces of this change needs to be empathetic leadership and people being able to have these conversations and create these spaces and cultures where people feel more able to share their experiences. And we're journalists after all, right? Or I am a journalist after all. Mm-hmm. I work with journalists. We're storytellers. We're conditioned to not become the story. But I do think there's an incredible power in the right place for sharing our own stories. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up, this idea of empathetic, empathetic leadership. You know, so, so much of the conversations I have with employees in the tech space and across other industries revolves around 
often leadership not being compassionate or empathetic to the experience that folks are having. And it just infinitely makes things more difficult for those people to feel a sense of belonging and feeling sense of psychological safety. And frankly, to even recover from those experiences afterwards, even when they move on to maybe a healthier work environment, there's still this aftermath of what it's like working with uh, Mm -hmm. non-empathetic leaders. And I'm kind of curious, like your perspective, you know, when you say empathetic leadership, like what kind of stands out to you as like qualities of an empathetic leader? And, and how, how would one put that into practice? I think some of the kind of things, examples I might give now are not specifically empathy, but I think some of them are around what makes a good leader. And I, I'm, this is not my analogy. This is somebody else's, a, a colleague who's a journalist. And I heard it from him like last year or earlier this year. And he said the best leaders are not the, necessarily the people who kind of, no, he said basically that the best leaders are people who help remove the barriers for folks around them. Mm. And and something else I heard very much recently was leaders listen and they ask questions and they don't necessarily tell or direct all the time. There is a space for that direction and leadership, but there's also a space for walking alongside somebody listening creating that space where you amplify somebody's experience and you also help remove the barriers that are in place so for me that's kind of really important there's quite a I guess in journalism we've seen a kind of quite a a leadership style where it's leading from the top and it's kind of my way or the highway you know but I think that there's much more of a space now for creating these more collaborative spaces yes you're always ultimately going to need somebody to make the final decision but kind of creating these kind of spaces of collaboration, perhaps more weight that you see in tech than in journalism. We're quite a hierarchical industry, I think, in journalism. But I think one of the things that's also really great now, and we're seeing it a bit more and not enough, is there's more of a kind of two-way conversation between, you know, folks who are kind of coming new into the industry and folks who've been there for a long time. We realise and we're recognising that we can learn from each other. And I think that also just you know, back to that sense of empathy. Empathy is not saying that you kind of, you get what is going on with somebody's life. Empathy is not kind of, you know, saying, I know how you feel. It's kind of offering to walk alongside somebody. Um, And I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, being able to show yourself as a human being while finding that balance, because a lot of people and a lot of people be like, oh, I don't want to know everything that's going on in your life. You know, as a leader, that people don't want to know everything, mm-hmm. but kind of showing that humanity and also showing that sometimes you find things challenging too is really important. Yeah, that vulnerability piece, I think, is so key. And and, and the, the idea, the word vulnerability, I always kind of scoff at a little bit. You know, it's it's, I think, an important concept. Uh, but often people are like, oh, thank you so much for your vulnerability. Thank you for your courage. And, and like, I, I wish we were in an environment where talking about mental health and sharing people's personal experiences wasn't seen as being vulnerable or seen as being mm-hmm. courageous. It was just normalized. And I'm kind of curious, you know, in what you've experienced, you know, with Headlines Network and the other work that you do within news organizations, you mentioned briefly this idea of like kind of multi-generational newsrooms mm-hmm. and like this this newish dichotomy of younger folks coming into the newsroom and engaging and interacting with people that have been there for quite a long time. I, I've noticed in the tech space and I've noticed in other areas that 
Gen Z and millennials, they, they, they tend to have a different perspective and a different awareness around mental health and self-care and even uh, more of a, a willingness to engage in conversations around this. I'm curious if this is kind of something that you've also noticed within news organizations and newsrooms. And is there, is there tension that you're seeing like across generations around that? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely something. And I think it's one of the most important conversations of the moment, to be honest. And I had a I was at a conference last week in London and was talking with a news leader about this, specifically about this. And they were saying that it's one of the challenges that they were encountering. I think that it's really difficult, right? Because over the last year or so, I've been having conversations with a lot of news leaders and then a lot of folks in the kind of, I guess, the Gen Z and the millennials as well. And unfortunately, I still hear from some people in their kind of 40s, 50s, 60s, oh, a lot of that generation are just snowflakes. And I hate that because mm-hmm. it's, well, firstly, it's really like horrible language to use. But secondly, it's, I try to kind of put myself, so I have a daughter who's 17, so she's not quite in that age bracket, but she's kind of closer in that age bracket than I am. Um, I look at the kind of percentage of her life that has been impacted by COVID or by a world that is not the normality that we had pre-COVID. And it's a really big percentage of her life. And so even for folks who are maybe 10 years older than her or 27 or so, the kind of the the, the weirdness of the world, um, the percentage has been much higher. So if you look at people going back to 2016, 2017 in, in, in the UK and in Europe, we had Brexit, um, you had the election of Trump. So when we were starting with these news stories we would tell journalists oh well it's not that's not normal this is not a normal story this is kind of like a this is kind of extra normal this is abnormal it's okay things are going to settle down things have not settled down in the last six seven years and so their normal is actually not normal or it's become their normal so I guess what I'm trying to say here is that you know Yes, every single person in journalism needs to be equipped with the skills and education to recognize that they're going to be exposed to stuff which can be difficult, can be distressing, mm-hmm. can be hard work, can be difficult to kind of can be um, can have a, can impact your mental health. But also we need to kind of create a space and hold a space for folks in that kind of generation and in that age bracket who have really, really solid boundaries. This is the thing I'm recognizing is people Mental health is one side of the other side of the coin for a lot of folks to, to physical health. Mm. It's like a, it's absolutely non-negotiable. A lot of people are coming into the industry saying, I want you to respect my mental health just as you respect my physical health. This is my right. And I say to that, absolutely, completely. So mm. there's more, I think, movement that needs to be had from folks who are perhaps higher up the journalistic food chain to kind of reflect on what we might learn from folks who are younger, perhaps newer into the journalism industry, and actually kind of think, okay, what can I learn in terms of what they're teaching me about my boundaries? What can I learn in terms of what they're teaching me about the importance of my mental health? How can I support them also to have the tools, tips and language to recognise that there is going to be an impact and actually to kind of create and support that resilience that, that they need as well? Um, so it's definitely a two-way street and I'm not entirely sure if that was entirely clear what I was saying but it's really really I think it's a really really important kind of um, conversation to be had 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that the fact that it's a conversation, I think, is the important part, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's so much that I'm seeing in various different spaces where people that are more aware or more compassionate or more empathetic or just more conscious, generally speaking, um, are pushing those conversations forward. And, you know, folks that maybe have been in the industry for a long time or that are maybe in older generations that maybe don't have the same perspective around these com- kinds of things. I find that they're they're having to to adapt and having to learn, and I think that's a really good thing. You know, I think it's a very healthy thing to have those ongoing right. conversations, so that over time we can maybe destigmatize these experiences for for folks and almost normalize the, the conversations more generally as just any other conversation you would have in the newsroom about performance or you know integrity or what have you. Um, yeah, maybe I mean, this I is a good segue into I'm, like. I'm, I'm, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to pick up on one thing. Yeah, please, sorry, my cat was trying to drink my cup of tea then, which is excellent. Um, <laughs> I think you are, again, conscious of kind of my perspective, and I can only speak from that. One of the things that I think is really refreshing and that I'm really, I really, I'm open to seeing more of is conversations around the fact that people's identity there is such a wealth to be had in terms of how important people's identity and is and in terms of you know how we can you know how making a more diverse and inclusive industry is actually going to be better for journalism I think that you know we 20 years ago we were not having any conversations about neurodivergence for instance 20 years ago we were Mm -hmm. having very few conversations about you know about journalists who are part of the LGBTQ community, you know, now it's so important that we can kind of embrace all of that and have an inclusive industry where folks feel that they are heard and that they are listened mm-hmm. to and that it's, it's safe for them to be able to do their jobs. And actually that that's better for our audiences. That's better for our communities, right? But I think that the other thing is what it means is leaders and news managers need to be open to the fact that we need to see things differently. We need to be flexible in terms of the approaches and needs and support that folks need, because it's not, it's not necessarily like it was back in the day in inverted commas. Um, And, you know, we could have an entire conversation around kind of me too and how things back in the nineties and and noughties that happened, you know, were kind of acceptable. Of course they weren't ever acceptable, but you know, how we just in inverted commas got on with the job. And nowadays that's absolutely completely not acceptable. So we have to change with the times is my point. And we have to recognize Mm -hmm. that actually becoming more inclusive is much better for our industry. No, absolutely. Yeah. And I would say that that cuts across all industries for for that Mm. matter, you know, and and Mm. I think that we're seeing that, you know, conversation evolving over time. And I think people holding those boundaries more firmly. And I'd imagine, too, people probably voting with their time where, you know, I, I hear a lot fewer people are kind of getting into journalism than they were in the past. And, you know, I wonder, you know, with the tech industry as well and with other industries, like, you know, is this something that, newsroom managers and leaders are going to need to be thinking a lot more about it. Like, are they creating environments that are healthy and that are attractive to folks that are more tuned into these types of uh, boundaries and, you know, needs of balance and well-being and self-care and and so on? I mean, there's certainly more people. So, you know, I did a piece of work, a chapter on burnout in, in my book and, you know, folks who are, who don't see themselves represented in the industry more at risk 
for burnout and leaving and, you know, voting with their feet. Um, Mm -hmm. People who are interested in journalism need more than this whole idea of, oh, it's it's a mission-driven profession, right? They need to know that it's, you know, there's something in it for them to, there's going to be career advancement, there's going to be career professional development, people, you know, there's going to be all of these things that help them aspire to and continue to do their jobs well. I think for too long, journalism has been an industry that's kind of just looked at people wanted to come into journalism as like, oh, you're so lucky to get a job in journalism when actually we're lucky to have diverse folks coming into journalism Mm -hmm. and we need Mm -hmm. to create the spaces where we create those pipelines for, for them to advance. So there's not enough investment taking place. Oh, I think I've lost you. Are you still there? No, I'm here. Oh, yeah. you just went. Can you hear me? Sorry, sorry. There's not, um, for me, there's not enough investment taking place to ensure that we're retaining the right kind of people. And a lot of that is kind of investment in mental health. There's been a statistic that I've used before where basically a one pound investment in mental health has a multiple times return on investment. So a one pound in the UK is basically, I don't know what the exchange rate is now, maybe like, um, you know, $1.3 or something like that. But it's that the, if we invest, we get a massive return on investment. And so Mm. for me, it's obvious that we need to kind of have these conversations and invest this money and support these kind of um, resources to develop a stronger culture where people feel um, that they have the tools that they want to use and they have the resources that they can rely on to kind of advance within their careers. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and maybe that's a good kind of segue into Headlines Network. And can mm-hmm. you maybe tell me a little bit about your work there and kind of what, what brought that to, yeah, sure. to light? So Headlines Network was set up um, a couple of years ago. Um, and what happened was, Again, it goes back to my own, I guess, personal slash professional experience of not having the kind of struggling, I think, and feeling isolated and not having the space to speak. I, when I used to run the organization I mentioned before, the International Youth Safety Institute, I spent a long time facilitating and moderating and chairing conversations where I bring fascinating people together to have conversations about things that mattered around safety. And I didn't really see that happening in the journalism and mental health space. And so I kept being on panels during COVID at the early months of COVID about mental health. And we were talking about our experiences and we were always like, we've got to do something. And occasionally I bump into this guy called John Crowley. um, And we just kind of got to the point where we're like, actually enough of the talking, let's do something. And so we decided to create this network, this company that would promote more open conversations about mental health in journalism normalizing those conversations as you and I have discussed but also do it in a way where we would share practical tools and tips with journalists to help them support their own mental health and the mental health of colleagues and we began with a series of workshops for journalists across four different career cohorts from kind of early entrance into journalism through to the kind of you know the the senior leaders of news organizations and we sat there with them we listened to their needs and based on those needs and kind of creating that space for them we heard what they wanted and some of that was around support from managers. Some of that was back to the kind of practical tools I mentioned. And some of it was very specific thematic stuff like um, 
how do I have a difficult conversation with somebody or have a, how do I have a conversation when I think somebody is um, in difficulty? Uh, what are the practical tools I can do to kind of practice self-care within the newsroom when it seems kind of counterintuitive to do that? And so we, yeah, we went from there. Um, we were fortunate to get funding um, from the Google News Initiative for that. And but now we're de- delivering kind of more um, commercial work um, with folks working with newsrooms around the world to deliver either bespoke training or kind of workshops with them. We had a podcast as well, which I'm hoping that we can um, uh, resurrect, uh, where we spoke with famous journalists, well-regarded and well-known journalists around the world, asking them about the impact that their work had had on their mental health and um, why journalism mattered to them. And that was absolutely, you know, wonderfully well received because it's back to that idea of having the story, telling the story, sharing the story and helping folks feel less isolated. Mm, it's powerful work. And and I'm kind of I'm curious, too, you know, how has the reception been uh, with newsrooms and organizations that have uh, contracted with you? Do you find that it's helping really move the needle in terms of the culture of those organizations? I really do. And I think it's really we've, we've seen a massive kind of increase, I think, in the impact in the last in the kind of second half of 2023. I think that's partly to do with kind of just the traction we're gaining in terms of the kind of the, the numbers of people with whom we've, we've connected. We've created a bank of resources. So our most recent one is on burnout. We did one on vicarious trauma. We've done a whole lot. We've spoken with experts. So we work with experts in the mental health space too. And we work with experts in journalism because we want it to be as a collaborative um, as possible. Um, we want it to be as diverse and again, in, as inclusive as possible. So we really have seen an impact. People are saying it's really needed. People are saying it's really necessary. People are welcoming it. Um, we speak at conferences now and... Um, you know, people are saying, oh, you're the guys from Headlines, which is Headlines Network, which is great, right? Because it's kind of like, well, you're the folks from Headlines Network because that's fantastic. I love the idea that people are actually now recognizing it. I was speaking with somebody earlier on today and they and they said that they'd shared our resources and that's fantastic as well. What I would say is there's always more of a need. There's always mm-hmm. more of a need to collaborate. We can't do this by ourselves. Um, there's always more of a need to kind of build solidarity within the industry and there will always be a conversation around bottom lines. There's always going to be a, oh, I'm not sure I can afford this right now. And my argument back to people is, you know, and it, it seems a little bit, feels a little bit like a Sisyphean task sometimes, you know, this idea that you're pushing your boulder uphill and it keeps rolling backwards. But it's th- this idea of like invest, invest for retention of people, invest to protect people's mental health, invest because you care, invest because these mm-hmm. are your most precious resources. But sometimes I fear that actually people aren't investing strategically around this. And actually it is a strategic decision, right? Um, and that's a kind of a bit of a weird thing to say is like, you know, because people can't really measure the impact of mental mm-hmm. health sick days or the impact of people's work because we're just supposed to keep on dealing with this crap. Yeah. And I imagine too, like, you know, gathering the kind of data that would really support the, the validity of these things, you know, because it's a long term strategy, you know, it's not a short term strategy of just get the deadline, get the story out, whatever, whatever is necessary. It's a long term strategy about employee retainment and retention and generally, you know, creating cultures of well-being where people can perform at a higher level. And, you know, I've seen I've seen research comes out that, that talks about conscious businesses and talks about uh, psychological safety as being a driver for innovation and productivity and all of those other measurements that, you know, organizations are so keen on on trying to to document. 
to be able to prove the value of other types of initiatives that might not be oriented around well-being or mental health. And I'm, I'm encouraged that, you know, there's more and more data coming out that points to the fact that, you know, having psychologically safe teams, having teams that are mentally sound um, will be more productive and will be more uh, sustainable long term. And I'm hoping that, like, the more of these conversations take place, the more folks uh, can actually point to the work that you've done and work that other mm -hmm. people have done to help advocate for these things that, you know, we'll be able to get even more data and case studies out that, that can really highlight that. Yeah, I mean, I hope so too. But I do think, as you say, that data is difficult to come by. And also there's a confidentiality aspect, right? Because mm -hmm. certainly, you know, where I'm based in the UK, you, you know, it, you don't you don't need to give the reasons for why you're taking days off. Um, and so um, I'm being attacked by a cat again. Um, I think I, I am encouraged too at the same time as kind of seeing kind of the, that data and the research. And, and let's hope it happens more um, more often. Mm. So I'm curious, you know, with just like the few little minutes we have left, you know, tell me a little bit about the book that you've written. Uh, what was the, the overall topic? I know you mentioned a couple chapter uh, concepts here and, and kind of what, what was the impetus to write the book in the first place? Um, my cat has now decided to just join us in this conversation. Welcome. Welcome. Well, to we can interview them too. Um, <laughs> uh, he's obviously very comfortable here. Um, so the book was, um, it's for Routledge, which is the academic publisher. And the book is basically a practical guide to journalism and mental health. And the idea was that it's, you know, for journalism practitioners, for journalism students, it's due out in the spring of 2024. So probably late spring, kind of May, May time next year. Um, it charts the conversations um, from a historical perspective around mental health. It looks at its situations, basically a lot of stuff we've spoken about today. So this idea of mm -hmm. culture and conditioning, how we are, um, you know, conditioned to behave in certain ways. And a lot of those coping skills um, are actually unhealthy coping skills. It talks about specific things in terms of what happens to the journalist's brain or the person's brain when they're exposed to trauma. It talks about... We have specific issues, um, subject um, chapters that I um, uh, write about. So vicarious trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, moral injury, burnout, the emotional toll of online harassment, which I think is really significant. Um, it talks about our empathetic leadership, the impact of COVID on conversations. One of the things I would say that has been absolutely, I mean, honestly, it was such a privilege writing this book. I was able to speak with, 45 people from around the world from about 13 or 14 countries everybody spoke on the record about the kind of different kind of models of approach towards journalism and mental health took some of the barriers in place some of the kind of coping skills that people had but I also managed to integrate case studies or kind of stories we've talked about a bit about stories already the stories of folks um, and I've shared those throughout the book so 12 or 13 of those so journalists and mental health practitioners, um, because they weren't not all the people I interviewed were journalists, but some of them are clinicians and experts in this field, about their stories. And really, for me, that's the kind of one of the most powerful things I was able to offer. Um, I do hope that it gains a really good audience. Um, it is an academic book, so it comes with a bit of a price tag. Um, but I think it's a really important uh, book to 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 integrate into conversations and I do hope that it it kind of reaches the audiences all the way from the journalism students right the way through to um to to news leaders as well mm, it's exciting and so if folks were interested in learning more about your work uh 
where would they be able to find your book? Uh, how do they get involved with Headlines Network? And if they wanted to be more involved just generally in the movement of mental health and well-being within news organizations, like what would recommendations be? My recommendations would be um, you know, seek out allies um, in this space. You're an ally. I'm an ally. There's a bunch of allies on on particular places like LinkedIn. Um, feel free to get hold of us. Um, info at headlines-network.com. Um, we're on uh, X uh, headlines um, net or headlines underscore net um, on Instagram as well. Um, feel free to find me. I'm I'm pretty kind of traceable on social media. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. And yeah, I mean, just kind of keep on banging that drum because it's one of these conversations that we need to be having as often as possible and kind of trying to tackle the taboos and stigmas that, that are kind of creating challenges and barriers for people. I am encouraged. I am encouraged, but there's still quite a long journey to go on. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, something I often like to end uh, my interviews with, you know, so many listeners uh, are trying to figure out ways to help manage their own mental health, you know, manage unhealthy work environments uh, and really advocate for better environments for themselves and for others. You know, in your experience, uh, maybe you could share a few things about what's worked really well for you in terms of like uh, managing your own well-being and mental health. I know you're an athlete and I believe if I'm not mistaken, you have a, a, a big race coming up pretty soon here, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm quite challenge motivated and challenge driven. So I always have been. I think sometimes that might be, you know, less beneficial to my mental health. But so a few things that have worked for me is um, I've become a lot more self-aware. So I recognize when the burden that I'm the toll that I'm carrying is is becoming a bit detrimental. And that I think has been through you know, falling and picking myself up. I wouldn't necessarily encourage people to do that, but it's been kind of just the nature of recovering through PTSD. I would say that, you know, recovery is not linear. I think it's really, really important to say that because even now mm -hmm. when I'm pretty well, I have dark days and sometimes it can be really discouraging to think that, oh God, it's another dark day. The sun will rise. Most days the mm -hmm. sun will rise. Even if we can't see it, the sun, the sun is there. So every day rather the sun will rise, but even if we can't see it, the sun is there. And so I think it's really important to kind of hold on to that. I think little steps. I'm a marathon runner. When you run a marathon, it's 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers, depending on which version you use. That's a long way. That can feel overwhelming. So focusing on the little steps in between, keep trying to keep on moving. I've just qualified to represent Great Britain, which is, I think, maybe the race you're referring to, at something called duathlon, which is cycling and running or running and cycling. And, you know, that's me having a target and that's me having something which exists outside of my journalism. And I think for a lot of us, we are bound up by the identity of our work. And I think it's super important to have something outside. I will just finish on another piece of a kind of thing, I guess, that I share with a lot of people. It's finding something that makes your heart sing. It's mm -hmm. that whether that is as we do in our house on an occasional Fridays, we turn on some really cheesy music and we dance around the kitchen and have a kitchen disco, or whether it's about writing short stories, which is something else I do. It's finding that thing that makes your heart sing, which actually, even if it's a couple of minutes a day, it's something to tether you to and something to hold on to when things feel quite bleak. And mm -hmm. final point, talk. Find someone you can talk mm -hmm. with. Find a community, find a friend and know that you're not alone. It can feel really dark, but actually you really aren't alone. 
Mm, that's such an important message to end on. Hannah, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you for sharing your voice uh, and raising awareness and consciousness around these kinds of conversations for others. Uh, hopefully we get a chance to connect again sometime soon. I hope so, Nicholas. Thank you. And sorry for the awkward position I've been in for the last 20 minutes. I have a, as you can probably see, a cat asleep <laughs> on my lap, which is why I've had a high hand moving around rather than, <laughs> yes, but the cat is very comfortable. And also, you know, animals can be good for mental health too. Absolutely. Well, cats are always welcome here. And thank you again for being on the Needs Improvement Podcast. And folks, uh, if you're interested in reaching Hannah, we'll add information about her endeavors, the Headlines Network, uh, her book, and then possibly even the fundraiser for her duathlon that's coming up in the speaker notes uh, below. Uh, if anybody has any questions or would like to uh, recommend other folks to guest on the podcast, feel free to reach out to info at nicholaswhitaker.com. Thanks so much, Hannah, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Nicholas. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode of the Needs Improvement Podcast. If our conversation resonated with you, do us a favor. Share this episode with your network. We'll be back next month diving even deeper into what needs improvement in the modern workplace. Until then, take what you've learned and make your workplace a better place to be. See you soon.